included with them. And all of these things uh, develop like a plan of action for people to reach beyond themselves to connect with the true and ultimate reality, um, a reality that will save them from the destructive forces of everyday existence. And it's a quote from her. Um, so today in the way modern times, we tend to think that um, something that is written that's not historical, if it's a myth, that it's not true. But this is not, uh, this was not common traditionally. That's not how it was viewed traditionally. So in the past, it was understood that a myth express, was expressing a timeless truth, which is, this is what's going in in the text that we read in Appamata, particularly the older ones. And these uh, myths allow people to make sense of their lives by when you set uh, your own dilemmas you can set your own dilemmas in this timeless context. And then it, we, it's not going to confirm our beliefs probably, that's not the point of it. Um, the myth offers a way of, of viewing the mysterious reality of the world that we cannot grasp conceptually. And that's what makes it so hard for us to read it because we're using the conceptual mind so often, uh, most of the time. And so it's hard to penetrate the text, but sometimes we can, and especially, as I say before, we can, we can map our, our life or some particular situation onto the text. So um, scripture never has provided exact uh, messages or you know, just one voice saying, this is, this is the way things are, and they have a, nor do they have an irrefutable doctrine, but rather <clears throat> there are, always have been regarded as a reflection of the ineffable. So for example, in Buddhism, we talk a lot about the pointing at the reflection of the moon in the water, um, but we can relate to that, um, but it's, it's still a, it's a reflection. It's not the real thing because we can't talk about the real thing with words, language is an impediment. So, and lastly, uh, the various scriptural traditions um, prescribe different ways of living in harmony with the transcendent. But one thing they all agree on is that to live in a general, a genuine relationship with the unknowable ultimate, one has to um, divest oneself of egoism. So the scriptures remain impenetrable without going beyond the ego and dismantling our instinctive tendency to place ourselves at the center of the world. And, and that came showed up in this text, of course. Um, so such emptying out of the self is a, is a central scriptural theme and requires a transcendence of self that is extremely difficult to attain. And that's why oftentimes they say it's best not to read a text um, just by yourself, uh, read it with other people. Um, but nearly all the scriptures present us with a human being who has achieved the tra this transformation um, and a more authentic mode of being, which the scriptures insist is possible for anybody. So in this case, uh, that's certainly true in this one where we have Himalakirti in particular, uh, who has uh, undergone this transformation and, and he's providing a, a, a manual more or less for the rest of us to follow. So any questions about that text and we'll go on with chapter eight.
Barbara? Yeah, um, yeah, I read that article. That that was so serendipitous. It just yeah. came out in Trisic. I looked at the date and I was like, good grief, <laughs> just talking about this that very day. Um, anyway, so it was really um, um, a, a wonderful, well, it exactly addressed some of the issues or the questions I had last week, and I appreciated that. Mm -hmm. And then right after that, I went back and I hadn't read the introduction to this book yet or mm. anything. So I, I wanted to do more reading, you know, kind of set the stage and get it in my head right. Mm -hmm. The introduction was really <clears throat> also spoke to this issue of the miracles mm -hmm. and the magic. And on page eight and nine, um, it's, it's a, makes it real clear that, that scripture is a special genre. Um, you don't read it like you would a newspaper or, you know, or a history book or something. That's not the purpose of that kind of text. Mm -hmm. See, you can't read that literally. You can't read right. the miracles and the magic is literal. Uh, but they do have an important function in religious texts and religious context. Um, and then it says here that um, there's two schools of thought about it. The modern scholars about this text, actually earlier in the introduction, it said this is one of the most beloved texts in all of Buddhism. Mm -hmm. This is like the bestseller, right, behind the Buddha himself. And so we know it's a very powerful and meaningful text for hundreds of years. You know, what is it that captures it for? You know, it's one, one is kind of interesting too. I'll circle back to that in just a minute. Anyway, there's two schools of thought about this best-selling text, much beloved text. Modern scholarship says uh, Vimalakirti uh, was not even a historical figure, that in fact he was just a literary creation. It, it didn't say this, but I would liken it to Homer. You know, was he really a real person? Or was he just somebody who wrote down, you know, these common stories and crafted it into a, a single text or something, something like that. Basically, modern scholars read this as a literary allegory. Uh -huh. But the other school of thought is the more traditional Buddhist position scholarship, which is, sees it as a living allegory. You know, Vimalakirta did live, you know, he, and, and there's some, but you don't read it for the history of it. What you're reading it for is for, as you said in the, in the, in the tricycle article pointed out, you read it for religious reasons, <laughs> for, right. you know, for ethical living and, you know, transcendence and so forth. Um, so, uh, that was kind of, it says whether it's literary or whatever position you take on it, what they all agree on is it is an allegory and it, it has a profound message to convey. And I would add that I think that probably to me, it seems like it's, you know, you just look at, say, the picture at the beginning of this text, you know, 
these multitudes of people, you know, that we talked about. Uh, excellent example of an allegory is we've been talking about how do you get that many people in one room <laughs> and so forth. Well, it's, it's an allegory for immeasurability are confounding, you know, that, that things that are conceptually impossible in our real lives is a way, is a, a Dharma gate into transcendence. Mm -hmm. uh, that there's another way of understanding the world, you know. And that's just one example of it, too. Uh, and there's some other really wonderful things that, oh, in, in last week's, let's see, there were, oh, the other thing they were saying is that the whole, in, the, in this introduction, hey, the, that's the message in practically every one of these set pieces is that it's the theme of inconceivability. Mm -hmm. And that is ultimately a statement of, you know, the, of the beyond emptiness, whatever we want to call that other, other state. So it was really, um, thank you for that, for opening up that. <laughs> yeah, I'm sorry I didn't do it from the get-go. <laughs> sending that to us and stuff, and then we were just talking about it. It was just like, okay, boom. <laughs> Yeah, I know. I thought it was <laughs> interesting. It just conceivability and the yeah. timing and stuff. <laughs> it's like it came from above, you know. So, exactly. uh, but I wanted to say too that, you know, what Sonny was talking about—that you know—that the Buddha, you know, we were talking about the magic tricks to get the crowd interested and all that stuff. Uh, you know, I don't think those things really happened personally. Um, but what I will say is that this kind of text, a scriptural religious text, has, in any religion, has that element in it. It's a trope. It's a convention of this genre. Mm -hmm. And I think that it is because that's what keeps us reading you know mm -hmm. it's interesting it's mm -hmm. it hooks us it brings us in you know and even you know like at the end of chapter seven we didn't get to talk about this much or at all we didn't ran out of time but the goddess that interchange between the goddess and Sharpruta, where he goes why aren't you a woman why why are you still a woman why don't you become turn yourself into a man because she was enlightened, right? Or she was, had, you know, um, and, and what does she do? She zaps him and turns him into a woman. Mm -hmm. and, and, it's, and it's not really explained what that's about until you look at one of the, the footnote to it. It says, in that time, people believed that women could not reach the realization and actualization and so here's Sharaputra he gets zapped by the goddess when she he says oh why don't you you're really smart why don't you you should change yourself into a man so you could be fully realized you know <laughs> and she goes zip and she zaps him instead and there he is it doesn't say what his reaction was but through this in this book and another one, yeah. Sharapurit is one of these people, and this and this said too in the introduction, he's he is, you know, a bodhisattva, but he is kind of full of himself. 
He's very complacent. Thinks he's, you know, he's got it all locked in, you know. And so he turns, she turns him into a woman as if to say, you know, women can be fully actualized or, you know, what is that about? I don't know, but it's a, it's really a, a, an astonishing scene in this thing. Oh, it's great. And, and potentially yeah. quite revolutionary for its time, you know, but it goes. Yeah. Anyway, so, and, it, and it does, it's captivating. It, it's good literature, too. And it has a powerful message. So that's what scripture do, does, you know. So thank you so much for being so patient with me, everybody. Oh, on no, that. not on at all. Thing. Not at all. You know, something else that reminds me of how we say, or how I've often thought of it, I've heard it said, that we have religion and miracles, the Christian, when I was Christian. But the other people, other cultures, have myths and um, magic. (laughs) (laughs) There is, you know, ethnocentric cultures. just aren't there with the religion and the miracles, you know, kind of stuff. So, but anyway, okay. Thank you for well, that. well, thank you, Barbara. I appreciate your uh, getting into that and following through, reading all the introduction and all of that. That's great. Okay, so now let's go to um, chapter eight in the book. It's page sixty-four, and the PDF it's page seventy-two. And what I'd like to do uh, to start, I'd like to divide up. Um, there are five different parts to be read, um, and I thought that we could uh, uh, see who wants to volunteer for those parts. And then when we get to the section that's in, written in verse, we'll just, everybody will, will switch off person by person um, reading a paragraph. But the beginning, uh, let's go ahead and divide it up by, by different voices. So, um, there, there's two, two, two characters that don't say much. So if you don't feel like talking much, um, you could choose Maha uh, Kasyapa. It's me. Okay, <laughs> Barbara. <laughs> Trouty, are you uh, are you interested in having just a little bit to read? How's your neck? How's your neck today? My my neck is my neck. <laughs> Okay, so do you want to read <laughs> Darshana? Who? Darshana? Sarvarupasam Darshana. Oh, where is he? He's at the very end, right before the poem. Oh, I see. I, I actually did not see him. He said that last person oh, to talk yes, before the poem. Yes. Sarva Rupa Samdarshana. Yeah. Complete vision of the. Oh, don't read it now. What? No, I, I just now. translated the name. Oh, I'm sorry. What does it mean? <laughs> I didn't hear you. Uh, complete, complete vision or appearance of all forms. Mm. That's quite a name. Okay, so now we have the narrator, Vimala Kirti, and Manjushri. Um, Judy, what do you want to be? Uh, uh, Vimala Kirti, I guess. 
Great. Okay. Yeah, that's great. That's fine. And then we have the narrator and Manjushri. Anybody? I'll be the narrator. Is that you, Joan? Joan will be the narrator. Okay, terrific. And then, then we have Manjushri, Nancy, I can or? Be, yeah, I can okay. be the Manjushri. Wonderful. Okay. All right. And then they'll be reading for everybody at the, at the end. Okay, so let's start. The Crown Prince Manjushri said to the Lachava Vimalakirshi, Noble sir, how does the Bodhisattva follow the way to attend the quantities of the Buddha? Vimalakirti replied, In Jushri, when the Bodhisattva follows the wrong way, he follows the way to attain the qualities of the Buddha. Manjushri continued, How does the Bodhisattva follow the wrong way? Vimalakirti replied, even even should he enact the five deadly sins, he feels no malice, violence, or hate. Even should he go into the hells, he remains free of all taint of, of passions. Even should he go into the states of the animals, he remains free of darkness and ignorance. When he goes into the states of the senses, he remains free of pride, conceit, and arrogance. When he goes into the realms of the Lord of Death, he accumulates the stores of merit and wisdom. When he goes into the states of motionless and immateriality, he does not dissolve therein. He may follow the ways of desire, yet he stays free of attachment to the enjoyments of desire. He may follow the ways of hatred, yet he feels no anger to any living being. He may follow the ways of folly, yet he is ever conscious with the wisdom of firm understanding. He may follow the ways of avarice, yet he gives away all, all internal and external things without regard even for his own life. He may follow the ways of immortality, yet seeing the horror of even the slightest transgressions, he lives by the aesthetic practices and austerities. He may follow the way of wickedness and anger, yet he remains utterly free of malice and lives by love. He may follow the ways of laziness, yet his efforts are uninterrupted as he strives in the cultivation of roots of virtue. He may follow the ways of sensuous distraction, yet naturally concentrated. His, his contemplation is not dissipated. He may follow the ways of false wisdom, yet having reached the transcendence of wisdom, he is expert in all mundane and trans transcendental sciences. I'd like to ask a question here. Okay. Um, I take it that he's talking about himself as an example of a bodhisattva, but because there's no I when you're a bodhisattva, he's, he's talking about he. Well, yeah, well, he's, he's kind of, be, this is Vimalakirti talking, so he's beyond a bodhisattva, he's a bodhisattva. He's That's a bodhisattva. what I'm saying, but yeah. He's, I think he's talking generally. Generally. This is, this is what the bodhisattva does. Including himself. Yeah. Including himself, uh -huh. yeah. Also, I just want to point out, it's 
not that important. But if you'll notice, all of those, the last six, the avarice, the immortality, wickedness, and anger, all of those are the opposite of the six paramitas. Mm -hmm. So all of these things are categorized in different of the categorizations of knowledge that I mentioned that are in the back of the book. Um, anyway, this is, the, this is the paramitas. Before that, you had the afflictive emotions, and then you had all the hell realms. So anyway, he's going down all these lists of things that you that a bodhisattva does and and doesn't and doesn't do or in this in this case they're not doing what are in other lists to do but he does them and yet you know there's the other part of it he has well, the transcendence of this and that okay because continue well it's interesting it's because he's following it the wrong way yet it's the wrong things he's following the wrong way well yeah, I guess so. I think it's both. I think he's, um, he has false wisdom. If he goes the way of false wisdom, I, I don't know, maybe I'm misinterpreting that, but I think it's through the false wisdom. He, he has this other, because of his practice and so forth, he, he is able to maintain, uh, we'll take false wisdom, um, the transcendent, trans, Transcendence of wisdom, and he's expert on mundane and transcendence. Well, it's through his distraction that he turns back toward the way. It's through distractions exactly. that he turns toward the way. And I think that that's real important, a real important issue. And we'll talk about that a little bit more in the future. It's 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 like um, it's like having having these going through in. It, it's like you the mundane. This is the way I wanted to t title this thing. The the mundane is the is the gateway through to liberation. But go ahead. He may show the ways of sophistry and and contention, yet he is always conscious of ultimate meanings and has perfected the use of liberative techniques. He may show the way of pride, yet he serves as a bridge and a ladder for all people. He may show the ways of passions, yet he is utterly dispassionate and naturally pure. He may, he may follow the ways of Maras, yet he does not really accept their authority in regard to his knowledge of the qualities of the Buddha. He may follow the ways of the disciples, yet he lets living beings hear the teachings they have not heard before. He may follow the ways of the solitary sages, yet he is inspired with great compassion in order to develop all living beings. He may follow the ways of the poor, yet he holds in his hand the jewel of inexhaustible wealth. He may follow the ways of cripples, yet he is beautiful and well adorned with the auspiciousness, science, and marks. He may follow the ways of the of lowly birth, those of lowly birth, yet through his accumulation of the stores of merit and wisdom, he is born in the family of the Tathagatas. He may follow the ways of the weak, the ugly, and the wretched, yet he is beautiful to look upon, and his body is like that of Narayana. He may manifest to living beings the ways of the sick and the unhappy, yet he has entirely conquered and transcended the fear of death. He may follow the ways of the rich, yet he is without acquisitiveness and often reflects upon the notion of impermanence. 
He may show himself engaged in dancing with harem girls, yet he cleaves to solitude, having crossed the swamp of desire. He follows the ways of the dumb and the incoherent, yet having, and having acquired the power of incantations, he is adorned with a varied eloquence. He follows the way of the heterodox without ever becoming heterodox. He follows the way of all the world, yet he, reverse, he reverses all states of existence. He follows the way of liberation without ever abandon, abandoning the process, progress of the world. Manjushri, does the body, Bodhisattva follow the wrong ways, thereby following the way of the qualities of the Buddha? I want to, can I say something else? Yeah. yeah. It, it seems that he's really defining too what it means to be a lay person. Absolutely. Uh, you know, completely in this world. Absolutely. And, and this is an important point. This is the point of the, the Mahayana, and it's also the point of that's, that's our life. This is why, this is why it's, it's, this is so important for us, because we're in the lay practice. This is, this is our life. It's not like he's, he's not a monk, but he acts like a monk. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's great. Thank you. In some, in some of these, it seems like it was very almost in the same day or the same moment. It read as though, at least in, in translated to English, that there was a very clear short timeline. Yet some of these, I'm wondering if they're also, you know, with the whole uh, very expansible and contractible scales of these sutras, I'm wondering if some of these are also meaning on the infinite timelines that one chooses to be reborn if one chooses the bodhisattva path until all uh, until all beings you know achieve liberation i'm wondering if that's the scale of some of these because there's some that like uh you know it's just like i, I hear it and my brain kind of boggles out into the like you know room full of a billion dejillion people um and there's some where i'm like oh yeah like he did a thing and then at the end of the day reverts back to this wizenedness or whatever and i've had both experiences hearing through this mm. and so uh, I, I wonder if that again is the you know the the sense of scale and how it's contracted yeah. and expanded uh, well that's a, that's an interesting question I'm not exactly sure how to answer it um, yeah I think that's definitely definitely that's an aspect of the whole Mahayana thing is a great scale coming back and forth but I don't know how that relates exactly to this as far as the timeline I, I tend to think of the timeline being, well, and when we get into the part of the, of the emptiness, kind of describing the, the emptiness part, the second half, that's timeless. I mean, it's, it's mm -hmm. past, future, it's present, it's all of them. So it, um, that's part of it. So that's the inconceivable part of, of including all time. Mm -hmm. So what was I reading? I read somewhere in one of these books that I've been looking at um, that, that when, maybe it was in a footnote, um, that, that once you become liberated, then, then you're liberated now, but that also means you're liberated in the past and in the future. Mm -hmm. 
So I don't know if that answers your question. It kind of does. Uh, so, but I think your your mind is on track, or something is on yeah. track. <laughs> the suture's on track. <laughs> the sutra is on track. Yeah. yeah this this <laughs> sutra is definitely on track. You know, Buddha talked about um, uh, seeing his, the past and the present and the future, and so time is a very artificial thing. Mm -hmm. That that he doesn't isn't a, a controller mm -hmm. like it is for our lives. You know, yeah, no, no, it's a and so yeah. Both space and time. I really like what John had to say too. Yes, is is the scale is just wow. You know, you're you're going up close. You're moving out, um, but it's not just time. It's also space. Absolutely. Yeah, Absolutely. just boggling the mind, confounding the mind. Well, and out of a, our, the, our conventional understanding of space and time. Exactly. And that's the whole, that's the whole point. You know, that's, that's part of it. And, and that's the part of the two that when I was talking about the um, reconciliation of dichotomies, which is, this is kind of it too. Um, that it, it breaks the mind out of, 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 of um, conceptions, meaning the conceptual mind. Right, but it's interesting too that it doesn't, he doesn't do the reconciliation. <laughs> it's the audience or the readers that do, and that's the work of scripture, right? Is well, that's right, that's right. The way, it's, the way it's written. I mean, it doesn't say do this or do that. It, it's a consequence of, of reading it. And it is ineffable. Uh, you know, you can't, you can't really describe the process or the end point anyway. You know, so. Okay. Uh, let's see, where are we? Manjushri, I think. Are we on Manjushri? Yes. 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 Narrator. Yeah. Chabi Vimalakirta said to the Crown Prince Manjushri, Manjushri, what is the family of the Tathagatas? Manjushri replied, No, sir. The family of the Tathagatas consists of unbasic egoism, of ignorance and thirst of existence, of lust, hate, and folly, uh -huh. of the four myths of apprehensions, of the five obscurations, of the six media of sense, of the seven of words, of consciousness, of the eight force path, of the nine causes of irritation, of the path of ten sins. Such is the family of Tathagatas. In short, noble sir, the 62 kinds of convictions consist, constitute the family of the Tathagatas. Uh, can I want to break in here for just a second? Um, so all of those numbered things, I didn't send you the numbered things. I should have sent that to you from the beginning, but all of those are actually enumerated. And then the 62 convictions we already talked about, but, but basically, uh, it's, I read this, uh, read a short thing on this, that, um, that it's also called the net of Brahma Sutra, or it's in that both in its Mahayana. Brahma Jala. What? Is it Brahma Jala? 
Yeah, it's got that too. The one is from a different, it's a different, the Netta Brahma Sutra and the Brahma Javala Sutra, both in its Mahayana and Theravada versions presents those wrong views propounded by 18 non-Buddhist extremists. Um, Although the two versions present slightly different lists, all 62 wrong views are based on considering the self or soul of a person to be sufficiently knowable and the universe to be truly existent. So that's completely different from what the Buddha presents, right? Okay. Um, and then also, I just wanted to, to break in here for a moment and, and just read a, a section that I got from a, a commentary from Joan Sutherland. She's talking about this. So she says, it is all these actions that, you know, that, that, that he does but the key is, is that he's in the second part, isn't identifying with the actions themselves. And so um, he's, the, the Bodhisattva is not holding himself superior to or separate from them. Um, opposed to the type of disciples, they say, act like they're superior to. Anyway, so in this place, you can nurture a peaceful and generous heart, even in hell, even in the vast emptiness of nirvana. A peaceful and generous heart is improvement on hell, but also more precious than nirvana because it's how we can extend the healing to others. Problems in the material world need hands and checkbooks and perseverance, which is not possible in nirvana. And this generous, peaceful heart is how we extend the healing without exhausting it within ourselves. It is a sustainable state. So this is disidentified, but but not separate. So-called unacceptable paths, which is the wrong way, are like the shadow side that we've talked, that Flint has talked about in his class and so forth, uh, contain the huge potential for our awakening. So this is the other, the other side of things. Uh, we have enlightenment and then we have this, the shadow stuff that provides the way to our help, our awakening. Okay, so we can go back, we might hear Manjushri, with what in mind do you say so? Noble sir, one who stays in the fixed determination of the vision of the uncreated is not capable of con conceiving the spirit of unexcelled perfect enlightenment. However, who um, one who lives among created things in the in the minds of passions without seeing on any truth is indeed capable of conceiving the spirit of unexcelled perfect enlightenment. Noble sir, flowers like the blue lotus, the red lotus, the white lotus, the water lily, and the moon lily do not grow on the dry ground in the wilderness, but do grow in the swamps and mountains. Just so, the Buddha quantities do not grow in living beings certainly destined for the uncreated, but to grow in those living beings who are like swarms and mugments of passions. Likewise, as seeds do not grow in the sky, but do grow in the earth. So the Buddha quantities do not grow in those determined for the absolute, but do grow in those who conceive the spirit of enlightenment. After having produced a summary, summary like mountain of 
egoistic views, noble sir, through these considerations, one can understand that all passions constitute the family of the Tathagatas. For example, noble sir, without going out into the great ocean, it is impossible to find precious, brightless pearls. Likewise, without going into the ocean of passions, it is impossible to attain the mind of omniscience. Okay, so I also wanted to um, pause right there for a minute. Well, actually, the next part goes on to it, too. But I just, when I read this in the book, I have to say, I got so excited. Because I thought, this is the good news for human beings. This is the good news for all of us. You know, we get to have this, all this stuff that we do that's, you know, kind of, kind of scary. <laughs> but it's, and it's through that we have the, the other part. Okay, continue. Narrator, I think it's you. Then the elder Mahakashyapa applauded the crown prince Manjushri. Good, good Manjushri. This is indeed well spoken. This is, this is right. The passions do indeed constitute the family of the Jagadhas. How can such as we, the disciples, conceive the spirit of enlightenment? or become fully enlightened in regard to the qualities of the Buddha. Only those guilty of the five deadly sins <laughs> He's like all happy. Yay! He <laughs> got this wired. <laughs> this is my jam. Okay. Only these guilty of the five deadly sins can conceive the spirit of enlightenment and can attain Buddhahood, which is the full accomplishment of the qualities of the Buddha. Just as, for example, the five desire objects have no impression or effect on those bereft of faculties, even so, all the qualities of the Buddha have no impression or effect on the disciples who have abandoned all adherences. Thus, the disciples can never appreciate these qualities. Therefore, Manjushri, the ordinary individual is grateful to the Tagatha. The disciples are not grateful. Why? Ordinary individuals, upon learning of the virtues of the Buddha, conceive the spirit of unexcelled perfect enlightenment in order to ensure the uninterrupted continuity of the heritage of the three jewels. But the disciples, although they may hear the qualities, powers, and fearlessness of the Buddha until the end of their days, are not capable of conceiving the spirit of unexcelled perfect enlightenment. Thereupon, the Bodhisattva Sarvaruparamamsarsana, who was present in the assembly, addressed Lichavi Bimalakirti. Householder. Is that? No, that's Trouty. Oh, I'm sorry. Okay. <laughs> Where are your father and mother, your children, your wife, your servants, your maids, your laborers, and your attendants? Where are your friends, your relatives, 
and your kinsmen? Where are your servants, your horses, your elephants, your chariots, your bodyguards, and your bearers? Thus addressed the Lichabi Vimalakrishli spoke the following verses to the Bodhisattva Sarvarupa Darsana. Um, so this is where we'll just, everybody will read a paragraph because it's kind of long. So let's go alphabetically. So Barbara, I think you're first, followed by Joan, it looks like. Oh no, followed by uh, Trouty. Okay. So Barbara, then Trouty. <clears throat> okay. Yeah, yeah, of the true Bodhisattva. Okay. Uh, the but true we, did, did, did we, did we, sorry, 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 I'm sorry. It's okay. I didn't say anything. <laughs> Are we ready? Yes, we're ready. Okay. Uh, the true bodhisattvas, the mother is the transcendence of wisdom. The father is the skill and liberative technique. The leaders are born of such pat pattern uh, parents. Their, their wife is the joy in the Dharma. Love and compassion are their daughters. The Dharma and the truth are their sons. And their home is deep thought on the meaning of whiteness. All the passion of their disciples controlled at will. Their friends are the aids to enlightenment. Thereby, they realize supreme enlightenment. Their companions ever with them are the six transcendences. Their consorts are the means of unification. Their music is the teaching of the Dharma. The incantations make their garden, which blossoms with the flowers of the factors of enlightenment, with trees of the great wealth of the Dharma and fruits of the Gnosis of liberation. Their pool consists of the eight liberations filled with the water of concentration, covered with the lotuses of the seven impurities. Who bathes therein becomes immaculate. Their bearers are the six super knowledges. Their vehicle is the unexcelled Mahayana. Their driver is the spirit of enlightenment, and their path is the eightfold peace. Their ornaments are the auspicious sign and the eighty marks. Their garland is virtue aspiration, and their clothing is good conscience and consideration. Their wealth is the holy dharma, and their business is its teaching. Their great income is pure practice, and it is dedicated to the supreme enlightenment. That, that consists of the four contemplations, and its spread is the pure livelihood. And their awakening consists of gnosis, which is constant learning and meditation. Their food is the ambrosia of the teachings. And they drink, uh, and they, their drink is the juice of liberation. 
their bath is pure aspiration and mortality, their ingrudent and perfume. Having conquered the enemy passions, they are invincible heroes. Having subdued the four Maras, they raise their standard on the field of enlightenment. They manifest birth voluntarily, yet they are not born, nor, nor, nor do they originate. They shine in all the fields of the Buddhas, just like the rising sun. Though they worship Buddhas by the millions, with every conceivable offering, they never dwell upon the least difference between the Buddhas and themselves. John, did you go? Yes. Okay, sorry. They journey through all Buddha fields in order to bring benefit to living beings. Yet they see those fields as just like empty space, free of any conceptual notions of living beings. The fearless Bodhisattvas can manifest on in a single instant. The forms, sounds, and manners of behavior of unliving beings. Although they recognize the deeds of Mara, they can get along even with these Maras, for even such activities may be manifested by those perfected in liberative technique. They play with illusory manifestations in order to develop living beings, showing themselves to be old or sick and even manifesting their own death. They demonstrate the burning of the earth in the consuming flames of the world's end in order to demonstrate impermanence to living beings with the notion of permanence. Is that me? Is it? Uh, yeah, invited by hundreds of thousands of living beings all in the same country, they partake of offerings at the homes of all and dedicate all for the sake of enlightenment. They excel in all esoteric sciences and in the many different crafts, and they bring forth the happiness of all living beings. By devoting themselves as monks to all the strange sects of the world, they develop all those beings who have attached themselves <coughs> to dogmatic views. They may become suns or moons, Indras, Brahmas, or lords of creatures. They may become fire or water or earth or wind. During the short aeons of maladies, they become the best holy medicine. They make beings well and happy and bring about their liberation. During the short eons of famine, <coughs> they become food and drink. Having first alleviated thirst and hunger, they reach the Dharma, to, they teach the Dharma to living beings. By devoting themselves as monks to all the strange sects of the world, they develop wait, wait. all... Howdy. Yes. Excuse me, it's during the short eons of swords. I cannot hear you. Um, you were cutting out. Okay. It's 
it's the next yeah. paragraph is during the short eons of swords. It's the third paragraph on page 70 or. Oh, okay, okay. I just moved my chair to have some light. So oh, thank no, you. Okay. During uh -huh. the short, yes. During the short eons of swords, they meditate on love, introducing to nonviolence hundreds of millions of living beings. In the middle of great battles, they remain impartial to both sides, for bodhisattvas of great strength delight in reconciliation of conflict. In order to help the living beings, they voluntarily descend into the hells, which are attached to all the inconceivable Buddha fields. They manifest their lives in all the species of the animal kingdom, teaching the Dharma everywhere. Thus, they are called leaders. They dispel sensual enjoyment to the worldly and trances to the meditative. They completely conquer the Maras and allow them no chance to prevail. Just as it can be shown that a lotus cannot exist in the center of a fire, so they show the ultimate unreality of both pleasures and trances. They intentionally become courtesans in order to win men over. And having caught them with the hook of desire, <laughs> they established them in the Buddha Gnosis. In order to help living beings, they always become chieftains, captains. They also always become chieftains, captains, priests, ministers, or even prime ministers. For the sake of the poor, they become inexhaustible treasures causing those to whom they give their gifts to conceive the spirit of enlightenment. They become invincible champions for the sake of the proud and the vain, and having conquered all their pride, they start them on the quest for enlightenment. They always stand at the head of those terrified with fright, and having bestowed fearlessness upon them, they developed them toward enlightenment. They become great holy men with the super knowledges and pure continuance, and thus induce living beings to the, to the mortality of tolerance, gentleness, and discipline. Here in the world, they fearlessly behold those who are masters to be served and they become their servants or slaves or serve as their disciples. Well-trained and liberative technique, they demonstrate all activities, whichever possibly may be a means to make beings delight in the Dharma. Their practices are infinite and their spheres of influence are infinite. Having perfected an infinite wisdom, they liberate an infinity of living beings. Even for the Buddhas themselves, during a million eons, or even a hundred million eons, it would be hard to express all their virtues. Except for some inferior living beings, without any intelligence at all, is there anyone 
with any dis discernment who, having heard this teaching, would not wish for the supreme enlightenment? Indeed. Well, I, I can think of one. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, I, think, I think the last line is really interesting of, of the difference between the Theravadan and Mahayana, that there really is this desire in that tradition to, for enlightenment. Mm -hmm. but, but Joan is definitely not a Theravadan. <laughs> okay, so now we're going to get down to the chase of the chain. We don't have much time, but I thought maybe what we could do is, um, I thought we could do a writing exercise. Um, if you really wanted, you could do drawing, if, if that suits you better. But um, so what I would like to do is um, for, for you guys to think about your life today. And so what's going on in your life? And what might be the difficulties that are arising for you? And I would say at this moment or, or just in general. And for example, I think it's just briefly, for example, I mean, you've, you come up with whatever is present for you, um, whatever that may be. You know, maybe from the isolation causing some difficulty or maybe sickness, it may be emotional pain, maybe physical, but whatever it is, just come up with some difficulty and then um, consider the teachings offered in, in this, all these sections that we've looked at. This is the, this is the final exam. Um, as presented in the three chapters, choose one that might apply to your situation. Is there something said in these chapters or in just in one section or whatever um, that applies to your situation. How can you use this? How might this be useful to explain or go beyond the situation that you have at hand? And you have 20 minutes. Actually, 15 minutes would be better. So, and I thought we could go in, in different rooms and you can talk with somebody after you've written. But I don't know if we'll have time for that. Can we do that, Kim? Yes. But we do that after the, after the writing. So why don't you write for about 15 minutes and see what you come up with. Okay. And I'm gonna go let the dog out.
all the time we have for that it's about time to we've got only about nine minutes ten minutes left <clears throat> so um, <clears throat> wondering if anybody well you want to do this in pairs or we could just do it in the group um, does anybody want to share anything that they may have found for that exercise or that it didn't wasn't helpful for for anything <laughs> 
Well, I can share. All right. Great. Final exam. <laughs> what are my difficulties and how might Bhima Lakirti, the lay bodhisattva, help me out? I'm turning a ripe old age in a few weeks and I'm afraid I won't be called to try to be funny. My sisters would tell me to act my age and now that I'll soon be the age of a dullard, that is my difficulty. And until <laughs> tonight, I thought if I behave better and better, all would be well. But V said that I really can be a wild lay person and still engage in what we call this practice. I can still hyphenate wrong to punish my English teachers. So I hyphenated practice, uh, pract, and then ice. And then here's a picture of me roller skating down a, a hill with my dog who's also roller skating. <laughs> I cannot see it. Yeah, I can show it to everybody. Oh, <laughs> That's wonderful. Okay, yeah, it, Kim, it, it, I want it, to see it too, Kim. Well, I, I, Charlie didn't get to see it. I didn't get to see it. Well, it's not, it, it's not my fault, but if you go to my blog, it will be there tonight at 11 o'clock. <laughs> In living color. <laughs> I promise. I promise. And you are go going to talk a commentary to it, right? And the well, this is the commentary that I wrote. But but the piece I I did that I that I'm not going to draw on was just like so dull and so terrible. And as we were reading, I was trying to think, you know, what could I do? What could I do? I'm going to have <laughs> to start all over, which is against my rules. And so, thank you for. <laughs> doing this, Lord. <laughs> oh. My neighbor and I were having a discussion and he kept saying, if you have enough data, you can predict anything. And so it was all about that. And I just hate that argument. <laughs> okay, go always, on. You can always predict, Kim. It may no, not you... be correct. But <laughs> That's right. That's good. <laughs> I'll tell him that. <laughs> Does anybody else have anything to share? No pressure. Well, I, I, I could. Okay. okay. And John said Was there somebody too. else who, who wanted oh, to say something? Oh, you both can do it. You can each do it. No, no, you, you go ahead. Sure, sure. Um, uh, I'll just read it as I wrote it, I guess. Um, I have been social distancing so long now. Um, CBD and its place with my discipline, sensuality, sexuality, illness, anxiety, torpor. <clears throat> All of these are present opportunities for practice edges, or for practice edges, and the scripture addresses all of these. However, the long verse of chapter eight addresses my aspiration, my vow, my inclination, one could say. Um, and then I sat there and thought for a long time um, about how to a certain extent like what like what in this was uh does strike me the most and i flicked through and i reviewed things and um though i like get down with a lot of what was um said in this 
the the one line that struck me the most was the domain of wishlessness where one voluntarily manifests lives in the world such as the domain of the bodhisattva um mm. and just kind of the idea of voluntarily um showing up so to speak um i there was a point earlier that i was um that i was reminded of an ernest hemingway quote where talking about how like the person who um you know uh, a person who appreciates beauty but also you know suffering about something 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 uh oh i don't know it nearly enough to quote it i, I can only like, feel the general inclination of it um but it's it's a person it's it's similar to uh, mother teresa's um let them eat you up you know that whole idea of give so much that or place yourself in a position to be hurt in your openness to the world mm. um mm. and so the voluntariness of it the choosing the seeing the challenge and turning toward it um whether that be conflict with another person, whether that be just sensing my own anger, whether that be um, a lot of righteous indignation around ethics, um, whatever the case may be, that like seeing that and turning toward it, seeing my fear of um, the person who is clearly in a vulnerable place in their life and seeing how they may seek to, you know, seeing all the different ways they may seek to take advantage of me and still turning toward them as opposed to away from them. Um, yeah, I don't know, the word voluntarily, uh, or voluntarily, that was really like the single biggest takeaway. If mm. I keep digging at this, I'll end up with just like, I'll end up with nothing, like the whole thing and all of it and none of it again. <laughs> Great. Wonderful. Thank you so much for sharing that. Yeah. Yeah. I like I like the voluntary, yes. And and to remember it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Not sort of having it, at least I'm speaking for myself, not having it uh, sort of in mind, but not acting on it or being ready to act on it. Yeah. Yeah. And not a heavy or serious thing either. It's just kind of a, like, mm, yeah, that's what I chose. Like, it's so matter of fact. Uh, and there are times when I recede from that, but um, oftentimes if I'm mindful enough to catch the opportunity, to catch that, 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 um, that gap, that space where the opportunity to decide to turn toward it occurs the decision's always immediate it's always i've you know i'm a barnes and noble buddhist i've spent enough time looking and thinking at this that as long as the practice meets the moment um it's so obvious it's so clear uh, mm. uh, it's just a matter of <laughs> getting those two to meet sometimes for me mm. It's well observed. I mean, I appreciate that observation. Yes. Well, I'll 
share, we have a minute, but um, I'll share briefly uh, what I was thinking about. I was thinking about this, <clears throat> the issue of isolation, which, uh, a social isolation, which I've realized, um, I don't know, several weeks into it, that it was, my skin was starting to crawl. It was just really uncomfortable to be so separate from people. And um, and it was, uh, it's interesting that from there, uh, I found myself um, realizing that it was really important to communicate to, to um, particularly certain people that I've known for, you know, really good friends for a long time, to call them and, and say, I really need to hear from you right now. And I, I need for our relationship to be more, um, more active, because we we will take it take our relationship for being one particular person for granted. We always know, you know, oh, we're great friends and all of that. And whenever we pick up the phone and talk to them, it's wonderful and it's always the same. But I, I really felt the need for it to be, um, be be more uh, active right now in particular. So it was. So I feel grateful grateful for this opportunity. I mean, it's a horrible thing we're going through, but I also have a lot of gratitude because of the things that it's showing, showing me about um, my, my connection with other people. Like I, something that I really crave is connection with others. And, um, and yet I also spend my, spend my time being very busy. And so this, this period of time, I've had some more time just to spend time talking to neighbors and things, which I don't usually do that so much. Um, because I'm too busy. So, uh, so it's a mixed thing of, of feeling a lot of gratitude because of the situation, because it points out certain things that um, in my own um, choices that I have made and how I can change those choices. So that's all I have to say. Okay, so the classes, your time has run out. So I have a very short conclusion, which uh, I have to find. The moment. I think I rejected that one. <laughs> Okay, so I just, uh, as a conclusion, I wanted to say that the sutra, as you know, um, provides a really broad panorama of the, of the Mahayana tradition and the one based on a lay practice where the practitioner is living in the world. And why is that so important to, to me and to a lot of people is the fact that that's what we are doing, that we choose the world despite its afflictions and complications and suffering instead of just holding away somewhere. Instead, we commit to, to being available to other people and doing what John is, was uh, talking about, you know, saying yes and 
and voluntarily offering ourselves to situations or to other people and that it really makes a difference. <clears throat> so we're committing to that and, and to, to the Brahma Viharas and to, to this, uh, having this uncommon love and this great compassion and sympathetic joy and equanimity. And so that really there, we are living this life like the lotus alone in the, well, not necessarily alone, but living in the muddy water and we're bowing to life as it is and then through our own suffering, whatever that may be, that um, compassion arises for others out of our own suffering and, and that then we can offer this, this goodness that everyone has um, with no expectation of return. And, and this, is, this is our vow. This whole, this whole book and this whole sutra has been about. And so it's really a teaching manual, as I mentioned before, for the Bodhisattva and for us, because um, all the teachings are there in one form or another. <clears throat> and we just covered a few of them in the chapters that we looked at, and there's a lot more to be said in the later chapters. Um, but I think one of the, uh, one of the most the one that I was probably most drawn to was this chapter eight and this idea that, that the living beings are the ones who, with all their, <laughs> are there ways that aren't the, the, the Bodhisattva way that aren't the Buddha way, <laughs> that they're, it's, it's a, um, it's an invitation, the invitation to, to, um, to be able to move from that into something mm -hmm. much, much grander and to be what we can, what our true nature is, what our Buddha nature is. And, and that's, that to me was just the pointer for this whole book. I, I love that. So, and even though our, our it, 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 we, the teachings on the way to attain the Buddha qualities or Buddhahood, it's through our humanness, our messiness and the ugliness and even as it is, and then all parts are welcome on this journey that we have toward toward um, Buddhahood, being a Bodhisattva, being a Bodhisattva. And with that, I thank you very much for hanging in for this class. And um, that's it. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Good night. Good night. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. <laughs>